Pastor said, we're doing a summary. And then, oh my goodness. Books like, books like these do a summary so difficult, so really difficult. So when you generally, when you have to prepare a message, you, you first take out your notebook, pen down everything that comes to your mind, right? And then what do you do? You try to give a shape to it. You take the scissors and trim it, trim it, trim it, trim it. And then see how good it looks. And then see whether it actually speaks to you or anything about. And then I first did it. And then I tried to summarize it. I got no message from it. <laughs> I had to reopen the whole thing again. But I just have enough time to do what I did. And I can only pray that God will summarize James 2 in our hearts and minds today. Amen. We will not read through the portion. We have read through the portion. James 1 is through. James 2, we have categorized into two easy, understandable portions very clearly. In most Bibles, you will have divisions already kind of mentioned, you know, portions mentioned. They divide it into different subjects. So what we're going to discuss is about partiality or impartiality, and then about dead or living faith. And it's surprising that the Bible teaches us to be partial. Does it? Who said? There's one portion the Bible says, be partial. You know which portion is that? It's in the book of Philippians. It says, consider others better than? Is that not partiality? That is. And that's the only partiality that God approves of. Only partiality that God approves of. And that's the only legitimate partiality. And very often, we see it in churches as well. We see this in churches, not just in society at large. We see partiality being practiced in the church. Very often, the most educated, the most influential, the rich, are generally, it's easy for them. Let's assume that they do a mistake. We generally don't approach them for correction. It's easier to approach the poorer and tell them, hey, look, you need to correct or mend your ways. They are generally less answerable and less accountable for. You say, we're not talking about the church. We are talking about the church. We are talking about the church. It's there. It's prevalent. It would be foolish for us to assume that it just isn't there. It is there. So let's look at two things. Let's look at two verses. One from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. Deuteronomy 10, 17, for the Lord your God is God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. First Peter 1, 16, 17, be holy for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who, without partiality, judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear. What does these two verses confirm? They reveal the characteristic of God. One important component of God's character. That God is impartial. He is impartial. And it's good to understand that God evaluates a person by the condition of his or her heart only. And by nothing else. So, 
John in 1 John says, if you're not a Christian, that you're not a Christian if you don't demonstrate love to your brother. Meaning that if you love God, but you don't love someone, or it means you love God, but you hate someone, or it could mean that you allow a certain people into your friendship zone, while you do not allow others to come near you or to be friends of yours. All these are signs of partiality. All these are signs of partiality. So I believe James is addressing this to the Jewish Christian. And James is among the first New Testament books to be written. Very early. Very early. So at that point of time, there are less number of Gentiles in the church. There are more of Jewish population in the church. Jewish population. And James obviously sees this. He sees this particular thing going on in the church and he's want to address this here. And so in these portions, he gives certain things. First is the principle, verse one. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory with partiality. What does it mean? It means that if you claim to be a Christian and you, be a, you are a person claiming to walk in faith, and if you are partial to people, then it's, there's something wrong. There's something wrong because it is not compatible. Your faith statement is not compatible with the character of God himself. For God is impartial and you are partial while you claim to be of faith or believe in the very God who is impartial. Get to see? Do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. How can he do that? You can't do that. Look at how he came into this world. Look at his genealogy. Who are the people involved in? They were kings, of course. But they were all other kinds of people as well. Prostitutes, idolaters, people who committed incest. All these were part of his genealogy. Where was he born? Bethlehem. A small obscure town. Where did he grow up? Nazareth. We see in the Bible itself Jesus being teased. What good comes out of Nazareth, right? I'm a half Bihari. You know, I was born and brought up in Ranchi. At that point of time, it was not part of Jharkhand. This was part of Bihar. People still say, Kaan se ho? Bihar se, oh, Bihar se ho. There's, there's a tendency to look down upon, right? And what good comes out of that place? Perspectives have changed. Things have changed. Thank God. The maximum number of IAS officers come from Bihar. Do you know that? And there are a lot of excellent people who do academically and professionally well from that particular state. But we see only one portion. We see migrant laborers. We see only the negative points. Look at the ministry of Jesus. Who did comprise off. The majority were poor, economically poor. Look at, let's look at some of the examples in Matthew chapter 2 where he, you know, uh, remember a master calls laborers for his work um, from morning till evening. So he calls one at nine o'clock in the morning, one at 10 o'clock in the morning, one at two in the morning, one at two at noon, one at four in the evening. 
So that master called me at nine o'clock in the morning. I went, took the plow, and I kind of plowed the field, plowed the field, plowed the field. Beach mein chai pina gaya. I saw this master is hiring somebody else also at twelve o'clock. He also started pouring, and then I saw somebody who was watching the mobile from morning till four o'clock, and he called him also. Four o'clock, come, boy, you also work. And then five o'clock, he closes the day, and he gives everybody what one dinner is each. मैं वो तो सच में दाढ़ी नोच देता करेक्ट आई मीन एंग्री वी विल नॉट बी लुकिंग एट द ब्लेसिंग आई वॉज ब्लेस्ड विद इन स्टेड आई विल बी कर्सिंग दिस मास्टर वट काइंड ऑफ ए गाय आर यू आई मे इवन गो टू द एक्सटेंट ऑफ रिजेक्टिंग हिम एंड सीकिंग वर्क एंड रिमेन एम्प्लॉय अनएम्प्लॉयड फॉर द नेक्स्ट थर्टी डेज एंड दैट्स द काइंड ऑफ सिंह दैट इज इन मे I'm not thankful for what I got but I would blame for what I did not get or what somebody else got partiality and look at what Jesus says everybody was equal what does this mean that means you're first you're the last if you're the last you're first is equal for him it also means that you're all going to end up at the same point it doesn't matter who you are it doesn't matter how you served look at this it doesn't matter how you served if you loved god somebody would be busy preaching somebody would be praying somebody would be serving it doesn't matter please don't compare yourselves and begin to grade people into categories they're all equal in god's law he looks at each one without favor So if you're committed to the faith of the Lord Jesus you must be committed to impartiality that's the principle from the principle he moves on to the example and he quotes an example in verse 2 to 4 if an if in an assembly a man comes with gold good good clothes and a poor man comes we were praying for what as dbf dwarka to start up hindi congregations generally do you know what kind of what kind of people come into the hindi congregation generally generally it's largely the poor largely the poor they will be laborers they will be rickshaw pullers they will be vegetable vendors they will be maids who come to your place and work you know you get close to them they even smell different have you gone to the field to spend some time with the farmers in the village they smell different it's not that they're not having their bath they do but they smell different the nature of the work is different they sweat and they're out in the sun most of the time and they're poor and they're poor so let's assume that we have a hindi congregation and we have a combined worship one day and we have just these many chairs So how many of us will be sitting on the chairs and how many of us will be sitting on the floors That is exactly what James is saying If the rich comes you show them the chair If the poor comes you either be quiet or you show them the floor partiality And this is arbitrary favoritism And what does the word say it says 
In, in James chapter 1, 9 to 11, it says, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but to the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. Look at what it does. It takes the poor man and exalts him, and it takes the rich man and strips him. And this is exactly what God forbids us to do. And when a believer does this, he contradicts the Christian faith at its very core. So we see the principle, and we see James giving an example. And then through the example, he says how inconsistent this thing called partiality is. How inconsistent. First, it is inconsistent with the divine choice of the poor. Divine choice of the poor. What does the word say? Has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Who has chosen the poor? God has chosen the poor. He himself has chosen the poor. Now, which poor is he talking about? He's not talking about the Beatitudes, the poor in the spirit. No, he's talking about the economically weaker sections of the society. The economically poor. He says, God has chosen them. They're talking about the poor in status and economics. The elect of God are dominated by the poor. It doesn't mean that God didn't choose the rich. He chose. He had Abraham in his plans. He had Solomon in his plans. He had uh, Joseph of Arimathea in his plans. He had Matthew the tax collector in his plans. He had Zacchaeus in his plans. These were rich people. But largely, he addressed the poor. Look at the heart of God. Listen to the heart of God. In Psalms chapter 41 verse 1. Blessed is he that considers the poor. Psalm 68, 10, your congregation dwelt in it. You, O God, provided from your goodness for the poor. Psalm 72, 12, for he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him who has no helper. Proverbs 17, 5, he who mocks the poor reproaches his maker. Proverbs 28, 27, he who gives to the poor will not lack, but who hides his eyes will have many curses. There are many other verses. We look at an example in Luke chapter 19, the example of Zacchaeus. We know what he did after Jesus came to his house. What did he do? He gave half of his wealth to whom? To the poor. Why? All of a sudden, God's heart was controlling the heart of Zacchaeus. Until then, it was not. When God's heart began to, began to control the heart of Zacchaeus, what happened? He gave. To whom? To the poor. So James is saying, how in the world can you look down on the poor when God himself has chosen the poor? It's so very contrary to his character. And such a partiality, he says, is worthy of judgment. And Impartial or partiality is inconsistent. First, because God has chosen the poor. Second, it also blasphemes rich. What does it say in verse 6? Do not rich men oppress you and drag you into courts. History will tell that the rich always oppresses the poor. Be it rich people towards poor or be it rich nations to the poorer nations. They always oppress and 
money still there's a lot of talking in our churches as well right so we see the principle we see the example we see the inconsistency of partiality and then we see the violation of it verse 8 and 9 if you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture you should love your neighbor as yourself you do well but if you show partiality what happens you commit sin it's a violation you're violating god's law when you commit a partiality where is this where is this verse mentioned in leviticus chapter 19 verse 17 to 18 it says you shall not hate your brother with your you shall not hate your brother in your heart you shall surely rebuke your brother and not bear sin because of him you shall not take vengeance nor bear the grudge against the children of your people but you shall love your neighbor as yourself i am the lord and in deuteronomy 645 there's something similar but yet different what does it say hero israel lord our god is one you shall love the lord your god with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength jesus was smart in matthew he combined both these verses together in chapter 22 verse 37 to 40 what did jesus say jesus said to him you shall love the lord your god with all of your heart and soul and with your mind this is the first and great commandment and the second is this you shall love your neighbor as yourself on these commandments hang the hang the law and the prophets what does it mean it means that you are expected to take care of people just in the same manner you ex- you take care of yourself the same intensity the same benefit the same protection same care everything just like you would do it for yourself you are expected to do it for your neighbor and who is your neighbor every person who god sent your gives into your life and it can start from home to your church to your colleagues to your real neighbors in your city and the place that you stay and when you don't do this what happened you commit a sin sin is a negative component it's like you don't reach a particular mark you commit a sin and that is also says you also transgressor transgressor means you're crossing the line first you don't reach up to the mark but you also cross the line you're a transgressor and it's actually a character thing when you say you're a transgressor you're being characterized as somebody who repeatedly violates god's law so when you show partiality you defy god's law and you're actually saying lord i will not love you with all of my heart and mind and soul and strength and that's what you actually do we demonstrate a heart of violence towards god's law this is where the rabbis and the the pharisees made a fundamental error what is the fundamental error that the pharisees made you know jews were bound by what the law right and the law was stringent it was inconceivably hard to follow were they able to follow the law they were not so what did the pharisees do they allowed a little bit of grace into the law by themselves they said hey look they're not able to follow all the law thodi badi galti hoti hai wo chalta hai god forgives 
And so they blinded themselves and they said that it's okay. A little bit of this is okay. And those small violations go unpunished because God is gracious. And this is the mistake that they did. What was the mistake? The law has no provisions for grace. There's absolutely no provision for grace in the law. You break one, you're worthy of judgment. There was no grace in the law. Because they read grace into the law, they did not have the need for a savior. Why do you need a savior? We have the law that shows us what to do. You follow the law to the extent possible and if you don't follow, what happens? It's okay, God will forgive. And that is what they actually kind of implied when they taught the Jews. And when they taught that, they had no need for a savior. Why do you need a savior? You have everything that you need. So James brings us to the climax in this manner. Partiality is inconsistent with the Christian faith. Why? Because Christian faith is consistent with the nature of God and God is impartial. Number two, partiality is inconsistent with the purpose and plan of God in choosing the poor of the world to be rich. Partiality is inconsistent with loving your neighbor as yourself. Partiality, strictly speaking, is a sin that shatters God's law entirely and makes you a transgressor. And partiality, if that was the only sin available or only sin that you have ever committed, it is enough to condemn you to hell forever. And that is what partiality does to us. And so finally, he closes that portion with an appeal in verse 12 and 13. He says, so speak and do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So every time you think about how you treat the poor that you come across, or how you treat other people that God has given in your life. Think about it yourself. Think about, this is from a church perspective. Look at it from a personal perspective. When do we take the new bed sheets out? The new pillows out? The new towels out? Is it when my parents come or your parents come? Think about those things. Things is the word actually eats into your heart and mind and what makes you violate God's sin, God's law. And from this, he moves straight into the second portion. And that's what is termed as dead faith. What do you mean by dead faith? Either you have faith or you have no faith. So dead faith is zero faith. And that's what James is saying. He's saying... From the remaining portion of the passage, he says, people with dead faith substitute words for deeds. True faith will always be seen in works. Dead faith will not be seen at all. See that? And what are the kind of faith that he's talking about? What is dead faith? And the Bible gives us some example of these dead faith. First, Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, and 
He said to them, brood of vipers, who want you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not think to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, don't count on your heritage. I'm half Bihari and I'm half Malu as well. You know, in the kind of mainline churches that we come from, heritage is a big thing. In Malayalam, we say parimperium. Goodness, it has such a great weightage in your life. That's my culture. This is my, where I come from. Our bishop was so and so and so. Our church started so and so date, you know. And these were the leaders. My grandfather was so. My great grandfather was so and so. This is the family background. This is my religious background. James says, don't count on them. They're as useless. They're just useless. The second portion, Matthew chapter 5 verse 16. Let your light so shine before men that you may see, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. What is that? In other words, it means the light that shines out of a believer is the light of good works. Demonstrated, not assumed. Demonstrated, not assumed. So, if you claim to be people with faith, and if your life doesn't show it, stop talking about faith. You just don't have it. It's dead faith. The third portion, Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. In other words, it is not the talkers, but the doers. We covered that in James chapter 1. Let's not be hearers, but doers of God's word. What happens if you are only talkers and not doers? In James chapter 1, it says you deceive yourself. Why do you have to work so hard to make yourself look so foolish? That's what James is saying. You don't have to do that. The other portion is John chapter 2 verses 23 to 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man. What does that, what does the word say? What does the word say? Many what? Believed. Many people believed in Jesus. But what is Jesus saying? He did not commit himself to them. Why? Because he knew what they believed. Or in other words, believing, in other words, sorry, in other words, it means that the belief was less than sufficient. You say you believe? Mm-hmm. It just doesn't meet up to my mark. I'm sorry. You don't qualify. Your faith doesn't qualify as faith. It is dead. John chapter 3, verses 2 to 3. Very famous verse. Everybody knows this. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Who is this man? Nicodemus. He came by night. Nobody was saying. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. We he comes singularly and he says we. Obviously that means it's along with him. There were a few more Pharisees who perhaps 
believed in Jesus. Right? And it says, Rabbi, we know that we are teachers who come from God, for nobody can do these signs unless God is with him. But what did Jesus say? Assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Meaning what? Believing is not enough unless you are transformed. If you say you believe and you, there is no transformation in your life, your faith is a dead faith. Dead faith. Valid saving faith has always been verified by its fruit. Always. And it's clear that many of many people who come to churches, including the DBF churches, belongs to this category. Many of us belong to this category. I'm not trying to judge people, but many of us come with people as good as dead faith. Why? Because we claim to believe, but our life has absolutely nothing to do with it. It doesn't show the fruit of faith in our lives. And the Lord was really concerned with this. And he gives us several examples in the Gospels. The parable of the soils, the abiding and the non-abiding branches. The good tree. What is the good tree? A tree that bears fruit. That's the good tree. And this is a common issue in the church. Intellectual belief is not enough. Your justification must have more than the statement of what you believe. It must be manifest in your works. The way you live, the way you speak, the way you treat people, the way you do your work, the way you are, you know, with the way you make peace or confront people, all is a demonstration of whether you actually are a person of faith or not. And James knows this is happening. And James, for as a pastor and as a leader of the church, he doesn't want to assume these things in his church. He doesn't want to assume to say that, No. He's very forthright in challenging the church here. He's not ashamed to do that. And he says the church is, right, is the right place to do that. People who believe in the facts of the gospel but makes no effort to shun sin must be confronted with the reality of their state. Must be. It must be confronted. And if you look at the whole of James, it's a series of tests of whether your faith is real or fake. A series of tests. If you look at chapter 1, 2 to 13, is a trial, is the test of trials. The next portion is the test of temptation. It depends on who you place the blame on, right? James 1 says that the Lord never tests, right? The Lord never, or tempts, sorry, Lord tests, but he never tempts. And then the end of chapter 1 is the test of your response to God's word. In the beginning of chapter 2, as we saw it, is the test of our response to the poor and needy. And now, the test of works. A series of tests. James says, you look at these things and decide for yourself whether your faith is dead or alive. Now, nobody is saved by works. You know that. We're talking about works. But we also know that we are not saved by works. 
Paul makes it very clear in Ephesians. What? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not of works. Lest anybody should boast. But listen carefully. Nobody is saved by works. But nobody is saved without producing good works. So if you say, by grace my faith has saved me, then your life and the fruits of your life to show that your faith was faith indeed. And you're not faking it. Let's speak at what's going on here. Who is James addressing to? The Jews. How were the Jews living? What were they bound by? We discussed earlier. By God's law. Something so stringent. So hard to follow. It is more like a burden in their lives. On top of that, the Pharisees and the teachers added customary laws into their lives as well. And made it very painful. And then one day, they hear a man walking down the streets saying what? Believe in me. Come to me. My yoke is light. Here's a man promising freedom. Promising peace. Promising joy. You know, in the typical Bihari language, we would say, They were used to such stringent laws and all of a sudden, they seem to be, there seem to be somebody who's coming down and saying, you don't have to follow them. You're free now. You're free from the law. Grace is what will rule your life. What happened as a result of it is they started walking from one pole to the other extreme. They started saying, oh really? What a relief man. Now I'm saved by grace. No matter what I do, I'll be saved by grace. James is saying, sorry, you misunderstood God's word. Indeed you are saved by faith through grace. But your faith needs to produce good works. Else it's no faith at all. It's not faith at all. We will look at, we'll close this by looking at some of the characters of dead faith. First, dead faith is identified by empty confession. By empty confession. Verse 14, what does it profit? Is what James saying. What good is your claim that you have faith but your works cannot show it. How does it profit? What good is such a faith? It's an empty confession with no evidence. Look at Titus 1 verse 16. They profess to know God. But in works they deny him. Being abominable, disobedient and disqualified for every good work. That's one of the characters of dead faith. That it's identified by empty confession. The second character of dead faith that is marked by a false compassion. Verse 15 to 16. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute and you say to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled. Just pious and empty words. Don't we do that? Question yourself. When we come to church, when people share a difficulty or a problem, what do we say? Yes, brother, we will pray for you. Be honest to yourself. Did you ever pray for that person? How many of you really prayed for that person? Most of us don't. It just becomes a confession of empty words. 
Yes, brother, we will remember you in prayers. We will pray for you. Bukhar hai. Dawa kharidne ke liye paisa nahi hai. No problem, brother. We will pray for you. You have a problem here. Oh, no problem, sister. We will pray for you. Yet I will not do what I am expected to do. It's far too inconvenient to do good works. It is so convenient to make a mere statement and we can walk away with it. And that is how Satan deceives us. And the third character of dead faith that is marked by a shallow conviction. Verse 18. Somebody will say you have faith and I have works. James says, show me your faith and I'll show you my works. Man, he's so aggressive. If somebody tells us like this in DBF Dwarka, I'll start looking for some other church. We don't like being questioned. James is not taking things assumed. He's saying, in fact, he's giving his own example. You see that? He says, I will show you. I will show you my faith by my works. You have faith? There was, uh, a lot of people say, well, how do, how, do you, how do you determine whether the other person has faith or not? Well, you can't really be judged, right? And we may not be able to see it. But the other person may have faith. So we can't end up judging the other person. True. We are not called to judge. But your faith, if it is, does not reveal the fruits in your life, it is not visible to you and me, then it is dead. It is dead. It's, it's as good as no faith. And that's what James is saying. He's saying that if you claim to have faith and it doesn't show good works, it is not faith at all. And so he challenges you. He challenges you. Your faith, very good. I have faith too and I'll show you. Now show me your faith. Show it to me. He demands that faith to be seen. And if you say that, no, 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 I show it only in private. It's a foolish statement. What, what does faith mean? Who is inside of you? The very living God. The light is inside of you. And if you say that Light is something that I keep to myself, but it will not be made visible to somebody outside. It's a strange contradiction of your faith. How can not light shine in darkness? There's a problem with your statement. So nobody can show your faith without works. If you go to, sorry, I'm, 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 I'm finishing. In Second Peter, Peter says in 1, 3 to 4, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by glory and virtue. Who has called us by what? Glory and virtue. You know what? When we become Christians, in some manner, in some measure, we already have that divine nature. In some measure, we are already free from the corrupt nature. In some measure. And then he adds on, and Peter says, now to give you diligence, add to your faith virtue, to your virtue knowledge, and to your knowledge self-control. And in the closing lines, he just cites Abraham and Rahab 
as examples who, who, who bore the fruit of their faith in God. If you're not willing to take up the cross, if you're not willing to take up the cross, if you think faith is such an easy thing, then it's time to turn to Lord in repentance and in prayer. Pray that we have faith. Look to these tests that James give. Examine ourselves as to where we stand in terms of the faith that we claim about to be. And let's pray that God will bless us in the days to come. Thank you.